Hello London, we are ready for your vote. Hello again, I'm Stephen Perkins and this is Douzepoint, the Eurovision podcast from the lovely people behind Bingewatch. We are with you every Monday, checking out the latest headlines and taking deep-ish dives into the fascinating history of the Eurovision Song Contest. Now, if you aren't doing so already, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at bingewatch underscore pod, where you can also tweet us any questions or comments, but nothing too mean, please. I cry very easily. In a few moments, we'll be taking a closer look at the Eurovision powerhouse that is Sweden. But first, let's take a quick look at what's in the news. The BBC have confirmed the performances we have in store for the semi-finals. Semi-final one will open with a performance by host... Julia Sanina, and will also feature Rita Ora performing a medley of her greatest hits and the world premiere of her new single. It will also have Ukrainian singer Alusha performing alongside Liverpool's own Rebecca Ferguson. Semi-final 2's interval will see the return of Maria Yaremchuk, she of the iconic hamster wheel from Ukraine's entry in 2014, leading a montage of some of the most well-known pieces of Ukrainian music, and also a performance called Be Who You Wanna Be, led by three brilliant track performers. Viewers in the UK can also look forward to some one-off specials in the run-up to Eurovision. Jason Manford and Chelsea Grimes will present Eurovision Calling, Jason and Chelsea's Ultimate Guide, which will offer us 20 reasons why the Eurovision Song Contest is the greatest show on Earth. And to that I say, only 20. Elsewhere, Fleur East is set to host Eurovision Everyone's a Winner, where she counts down the 20 Eurovision performers who didn't win the contest, but still went on to achieve great success in the music industry and beyond. And for those of you planning to head to Liverpool itself to enjoy this year's contest, the first details of the Eurovision Village have now been announced. Last year's winners, Kalash Orchestra, will be headlining at the Eurovision Village, which opens on Friday 5th of May in Liverpool and runs until the 13th. It will include live music, DJ sets, special guest appearances and a unique Discover Ukraine area. The list of acts who have won the Eurovision Song Contest more than once is not a long one. In fact, the only person currently on it is Johnny Logan, who won twice for Ireland, with What's Another Year in 1980 and Hold Me Now in 1987. He also won for a third time, but that was as a songwriter rather than as a performer, for Linda Martin's Why Me in 1992. But it looks extremely possible that we could be adding another name this year, as the current frontrunner to win Eurovision 2023 is Lorene, who of course already won for Sweden back in 2012 with Euphoria. So with that in mind, I wanted to take a little look at Sweden in the modern era of Eurovision and think about their track record and what it might mean for this year's contest. So let's travel back in time 11 years to Baku, Azerbaijan, where the contest was being held the year after Elle and Nikki won with Running Scared, a track which I think is underrated by a lot of people, by the way. Sweden entered the contest that year with Euphoria by Loreen, a song that was tipped to do very well, but was sharing the spotlight in the pre-contest publicity with Party for Everybody, the novelty song by Buranovsky Babushki, a group of eight elderly women representing Russia, whose performance involved them quote-unquote baking bread on the stage. To be honest, looking back at Eurovision 2012, it doesn't feel like a particularly vintage year. Very few of these songs have lingered in my head over the years, and most of the ones that did went out in the qualifying rounds, like the Social Network song by San Marino's Valentina Moneta, and Voki mit dein Popo by the immaculately named Track Shitters from Austria. The rest of the songs rounding out the eventual top five that year with Sweden and Russia were pleasant, well-sung, but fairly forgettable ballads from Serbia, Azerbaijan and Albania. So, not to take anything away from Sweden's eventual victory, but it's no surprise that their uplifting EDM floor filler ran away with the title that year, receiving a total of 372 points. 
That was a whisker behind the record under the old scoring system, set by Norway's Alexander Ryback in 2009, with 387 points for Fairy Tale. But Loreen did manage to break the record for the number of 12s received, with 18 out of 41 countries giving her maximum points, and only Italy failing to give her any points at all. Marie's win felt like a bit of a watershed moment for Eurovision. Now your mileage may vary of course, but it felt like the first time in a long time that the contest had been won by a majorly commercial pop song. And that was reflected in its chart performance, reaching number one of course in Sweden, but also in Austria, Belgium, Denmark, Estonia, Finland, Germany, Greece, Hungary, Iceland, Ireland, Luxembourg, Norway, Poland, Russia, Slovakia, Switzerland and Turkey. It only made it to number three in the UK, but when you factor in that it was the highest charting non-UK Eurovision song in 25 years, that's still pretty impressive. Of course, Sweden had a long and storied Eurovision history prior to all of this. I mean, you don't need me to tell you about ABBA after all. And they enjoyed a particularly successful stint from 1983 to 1985, with a win in 84 sandwiched by a top three finish on either side. But I think a lot of Sweden's reputation as a Eurovision powerhouse comes from its sheer consistency over the last decade or so, and it's interesting to look at how we got here. I'm sure you know this already, but just in case you don't, Sweden's Eurovision qualifying process is kind of hardcore. In its current form, Melody Festivalen, or Melfest for short, runs for six weeks on Saturday nights on the national broadcaster SVT, and is usually hosted by a different city each week. There are four heats, and in each heat two songs automatically qualify for the final, while the songs in third and fourth place go through to the semi-final, previously known as Andra Shansen, or Second Chance, where they compete for the final four available spots in the final. So 12 songs in total get through to the final, and the winner of the final goes through to Eurovision. To give you a little bit of context as to just how huge Melfest is in Sweden, this year's competition had an audience share of over 70% for every episode, and the final had a whopping 83% share. Melfest is a big deal, as you'd expect from a country with such a strong and proud tradition of pop music songwriting as Sweden has. Now, for listeners in the UK, it's probably quite hard to imagine that, given that the last time we had a national final back in 2019, it was one episode long, aired on BBC Two on a Friday night, and had an audience share of 6.4%. And I can reveal the song that has received the most votes and the artist who will fly the flag for the UK at the Eurovision Song Contest in May is... Michael Reisman! So, Melfest is big in Sweden, but it hasn't always been this way. Just as the UK fell out of love with Eurovision for a long, long, long time, and only rediscovered our affection for it last year, coincidentally the same year that we got our best result in over two decades, Sweden has its own spell of not being all that bothered about Melfest. In the mid-90s, the competition went from putting in audiences of nearly 6 million to almost half that, and the introduction of a televoting system all also caused problems, with some critics claiming that it was skewing the results. Sound familiar? So, just like Eurovision itself would end up having to do a few years down the line, Melfest rolled its voting system back to a hybrid jury and televote setup. Back in the 90s, Melody Festivalen was only held on a single night, but in 2002, Krista Björkman, the winner of Melfest 1992 with Imoronere Nere or Tomorrow is Another Day, was appointed the show's new producer, and set about modernising it in a bid to make the Swedish public fall in love with it again. His ideas were bold. 
He spun it out from a single night of TV into five weeks, adopting the heat structure for the first time, as well as adding the smaller Andra Shanson round, held on the Sunday after the final heat, for the songs that narrowly missed out on a final spot. He also adopted the new strategy of having the contest tour the country. Having previously only been held in either Stockholm, Malmö or Gothenburg, he took advantage of Sweden's vast array of ice hockey arenas to spread the contest to other parts of the nation and get the Swedish people to fall in love with Melfest again. And it worked! The viewing figure started to tick upwards again, so much so that even the second chance round was eventually incorporated into the Saturday night slot as well in 2007, expanding the competition from five weeks to six. Välkomna till finalen av Melodifestivalen 2023! Curiously, while the fate of Melfest was being decided in Sweden, the rest of the world might not have really noticed, as the decline in popularity of Melfest didn't have a noticeable impact on Sweden's overall performance at Eurovision. Like any country, they had their peaks and troughs, and after Corolla won in 1991 with Fong Stormwind, they had two more top three finishes that decade, and another win in 1999 with Charlotte Nilsson's Take Me To Your Heaven. Coincidentally, that was the year the rules were relaxed to allow countries to choose what language they entered in, so Charlotte had actually won Melfest with the Swedish language version Tusen Oen Nat. In the years following Charlotte's win though, Sweden racked up a decade of good, respectable, but somewhat unspectacular results at Eurovision, until they hit their stride again in 2011, grabbing four top three finishes in the space of five years. Firstly with Eric Sander's popular, using nominative determinism to snatch third place, then of course with Loreen winning in 2012, Sanna Nielsen finishing third in 2014 with Undo, and Monzer Müller winning again in 2015 with Heroes. There might not be a direct correlation, but it's worth noting that Sweden's rebirth at Eurovision came a few years after the rules were changed again in 2009, where we switched back from having a full televote system to having the results decided by a 50-50 split of jury and televotes. Which brings me to something else about Sweden's track record that might be worth mentioning. You've probably heard Graham Norton saying on the UK commentary that Sweden is so good at Eurovision because he says that most years, and he's not wrong. But there is a small caveat we shouldn't be overlooking, and that is that they generally tend to rank higher with the juries than they do in the televote. It doesn't happen every year. Indeed, in 2016 and 2021, their televote score was actually slightly higher. But as a general rule, you can assume Sweden's submission to Eurovision in any given year won't strike quite as much of a chord with viewers at home as it does with juries. To get Vaguely more statistical about it, over the last 10 years, Sweden has averaged a 5th place finish with the juries and a 10th place finish with voters at home, so there's not a lot in it in most cases, but there have been one or two glaring outliers, like in 2018 when Benjamin Ingrosso finished 2nd with the juries and 23rd in the televote. Just a few years earlier, only the most ardent Eurovision fans would even have noticed something like this, but in 2016, the rules were changed so that the jury scores and the televotes were both counted and announced separately, and that's made this sort of discrepancy a little bit more obvious to the average viewer. So why might this be? Well, their popularity with the juries is most likely due to Sweden's international reputation for high-quality pop songwriting, and the fact that their selection process, i.e. Melfest, highlights the songwriters as well as the artists. While I don't think they exactly need to be hitting panic stations right now because they don't have quite such a reliably strong televote, because their popularity with the juries tends to make up that shortfall most years, it is interesting that Melfest hasn't produced a televote winner in the final of Eurovision since Lorene, and that Sweden's best hope in the years of topping the public vote comes from Lorene again. Clearly, when it comes to Eurovision, you might be able to anticipate the sort of thing that juries will like and respond to in, in most years, 
but the general public are a different beast entirely, and Sweden is as vulnerable to that little idiosyncrasy as the rest of us. From the public, zero points. So if there's any lesson at all to take away from this, I guess it's that you underestimate Sweden at your peril. But at the same time, they aren't invincible. And looking at this year's contest, the momentum is definitely behind Lorene, whose song is already a huge international hit. And while I think the smart money is still on her to win with Tattoo, I also think we can't entirely rule out an upset, particularly with the likes of Norway's Alessandra, Finland's Karia, Spain's Blanca Paloma, and Austria's Thea and Selina going down a storm at the pre-contest parties. I think the competition is Lorene's to lose, but I also think she's got a few challenges on her hands as well. One last thought to end on, if Lorene does win this year, then Sweden will draw level with Ireland for the highest number of overall Eurovision wins, with seven apiece. Given Sweden's current track record in comparison with Ireland, we'd probably only have to wait another six or seven years for Sweden to pull into the lead outright. Interestingly, four countries are currently close behind both of them on five wins each. They are France, the United Kingdom, the Netherlands and Luxembourg. But out of these four, only the Netherlands have managed to win this century. The UK last won in 1997, France last won in 1977, although they narrowly lost to Sweden in a tiebreak in 1991, and Luxembourg haven't even taken part since 1993. That's it for this week. I'll be back with another mini-sode of headlines next Monday, and I'm also off to the official launch of this year's contest in Liverpool later this week, so hopefully I'm going to have a lot to talk about. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button to make sure you don't miss an episode, and until next time, good night Europe, and good morning Australia. Yeah.